Okay, well, I'm going to be talking about a crisis in a French context, and I'm aware that a significant percentage of the select audience is French-speaking. Um, so I will probably say things that are uh, very well known to them, but perhaps not so well known to the others unless you're all French-speaking. Anyway, I'm going to carry on and say what I was going to say anyway. Um, I think it's necessary to think about the sense of the word crise in French because, of course, it's going to determine the way the concept functions and is used in France. Um, the etymology and connotations of the word crise are broadly similar to the word crisis in English. Um, the etymology derives originally from its medical application, and you probably know that the French have a very particular medical condition that is unknown elsewhere in the world, la crise de foie, which is the <laughs> liver crisis, not to be confused with the crise de foie, F-O-I, as opposed to F-O-I-E, which is a crisis of faith, which seems much less common than the, crise, the, the medical condition, although the crisis of faith, I think, would be a more familiar concept to English speakers. It's also used widely in France, especially with application to politics and economics. So 2008 is referred to widely in France as la crise, quite simply, whereas in the UK we have multiple vague equivalents such as the economic downturn, the recession, or the economic crisis, or 2008, but we don't talk about the crisis and have it be quite as meaningful or explicit as it would be in France. The Trésor de la langue française has a very full entry on the word crise, and it distinguishes between two broad senses. Um, the first, which is where the medical sense comes from, puts the stress on the abruptness of the manifestation of crisis and uh, the way in which it marks a break, whereas the second broad area of meaning puts the emphasis on disturbance the difficult or difficulty following a loss of equilibrium. Um, so it's something more ongoing, or if you like, it's a state rather more than an event, which is the sense of the first meaning. And in this second sense, it has both an individual and a social application, and a subset of this meaning has it apply, the word crise apply particularly to the cultural and intellectual sphere. So we get... Um, this is for the benefit of the French speakers, situation, or a situation where the principles on which a given activity rests are called into question. So examples would be crise de la physique, crisis of, in physics, in poetry, the foundations of mathematics, or la crise du roman, which I'll be coming to. And then there's an example from 1936 about the crisis in theatre. Now, this seems to me fairly distinctive about the way the term crise functions in French, not so much um, in the semantic dimension as in its frequency, the ease with which the French will talk about la crise in this fundamental sense where anything from physics to theatre can find itself in a state of crise. And you'll notice uh, that the idea of a crisis in the novel is sufficiently well recognized for it to feature in the list of examples. And I'll be talking in the, later on about the crisis of the novel in 1940s France. But before we get to that, 
I'd like to mention two important contributions to the history of the cultural and literary usage of the word crise, which I think would have resonated in the mind of anyone hearing or using the word crise in a cultural and literary context in the 20th century. And these two items are, first of all, Malarmé's Crise de Verre, which dates from 1897, uh, which can be translated either as crisis in poetry or more specifically as crisis of verse, and I'll come to the significance of that later. And the second uh, point of reference would be Paul Valéry's Crise de l'Esprit, crisis of the mind or crisis of thought, um, which dates from 1919, written just after the First World War. And he mid-20s, 1925, he wrote an essay called Crise de l'intelligence, crisis in intelligence or an intellectual crisis. So I'll talk first of all about Valérie. I'll take those two um, uses of the word crise in reverse order. And it begins, this essay of 1919, with a very famous and much cited sentence, nous autres civilisations, nous savons maintenant que nous sommes mortels. We later civilizations, we too know that we are mortal. And he goes on to explain what it, he means by this, and it's basically the after effects of the First World War, uh, and, and, and the repercussions in the way in which civilization was now thought about. And he writes this in an English translation. We had long heard tell of, a whole, of whole worlds that had vanished, of empires sunk without a trace, gone down with all their men and all their machines into the unexplorable depths of the centuries with their gods and their laws, their academies and their sciences, pure and applied, their grammars and their dictionaries, their classics, their romantics and their symbolists, their critics and the critics of their critics. We were aware that the visible earth is made of ashes and that ashes signify something. Through the obscure depths of history, we could make out the phantoms of great ships laden with riches and intellect. We couldn't count them, but the disasters that had sent them down were, after all, none of our affair. However, this kind of situation has suddenly become much closer to home. We are aware that a civilization, including the European civilization of the early 20th century, has the same fragility as a life. The circumstances that could send the works of Keats and Baudelaire to join the works of Menander are no longer inconceivable. They are in the newspapers. So World War I had revealed not only that civilization has no protection against barbarism, but that the products of civilization itself could themselves be used to create barbarism. So the technologies primarily were used uh, to create weapons, weapons of destruction in the First World War. And when Valéry is talking about civilization here, he means European civilization. And what's happened in his view with World War I is that its underpinnings and its continuity, which began with the Greeks, have been dismantled and can no longer be counted upon. So he goes on to say, the military crisis may be over, the economic crisis is still with us in all its force, but the intellectual crisis, being more subtle and by its nature assuming the most deceptive appearances, since it, since it takes place in the very realm of dissimulation, this crisis will hardly allow us to grasp its true extent, its phase. 
No one can say what will be dead or alive tomorrow in literature, philosophy, aesthetics. No one yet knows what ideas and modes of expression will be inscribed on the casualty list, what no novelties will be proclaimed. You'll notice the degree of emphasis on high culture in Vanery's definition of civilization, which is, of course, European civilization with its grammars and its dictionaries, its classics, its romantics and symbolists, their critics and the critics of their critics. And the horror is the unprecedented realization that all this could just vanish and that Keats and Baudelaire could become as remote as Menander. You'll also notice, and this is what I think is interesting, particularly interesting about it, that Vanilli talks about the difficulty of grasping or locating the crisis, the crise de l'esprit. The means of understanding the crisis is itself part of the crisis. We can no longer think the crisis because the mind is in crisis. So uh, with this in mind, we can go back to Mallarmé's crise de verre, written in 1897, as I said, so 22 years before Valéry's essay, but nonetheless on the eve of the 20th century. Mallarmé begins by saying that literature is undergoing a thoroughgoing crisis, and he does so with an equally memorable or well-known or much-cited first line, littérature ici subit une exquise crise fondamentale. So, literature's crisis. And for those of you who are not familiar with Mallarmé, um, he's a difficult poet. He's also a difficult prose writer. Um, reading Valéry's prose is never a straightforward affair. Anyway, if it sounds odd, it's because it's complex and um, uh, involuted in the original. The translation by Barbara Johnson isn't half bad. Anyway, whoever grants this function of place... Um, this is literature, or even the primary place, will recognize in this the current event. We are witnessing in this fin de siècle not, as it was during the last one, a revolution, that's me building it, but far from the public square, a trembling of the veil in the temple and its rending. Now, the distinction between the revolution in the public square and the trembling or rending of the veil in the temple seems to me to be important. The crisis of lit and I'll explain a bit more about that in a moment. The crisis of literature described by Mallarmé is one that might sound, um, well, might mystify English speakers and probably would mystify um, most uh, citizens of the 21st century. The crisis is a crisis in the French 12-syllable Alexandrine, the line that constitutes poetry. The verse, the French call it le vers, the line of poetry, which is why vers and poésie are almost interchangeable terms, <clears throat> although the point is that they cease to be here. Anyway, Mallarmé calls the Alexandrine the national cadence in this essay, and what's happened is that this hasn't been overtly challenged. No one's come along and had a revolution about the Alexandrine. It's just been loosened and undermined. Um, people are now writing 12-syllable Alexandrines with 11 syllables or 13 syllables, and they're drifting over to free verse. So they're not, as I say, doing anything violent. They're just undermining it subtly from within. 
And I think what uh, Mao means by the rending of the veil is um, a reference to the fact that when Christ was crucified, when he died on the cross, the veil over the Holy of Holy of Holies in the temple uh, was ripped apart. And whereas previously only um, the uh, one man once a year could enter the Holy of Holies, now anyone could. So a sacred place, as it were, has become available to everybody and ceased to be sacred. Um, so I think it's important to hold in mind this distinction that he makes between the revolution that overthrows everything in a violent and public act and this undermining, which is um, in some ways a more extreme and thoroughgoing assault on something sacred. So, the 12 syllable Alexandrian line, it's the language of poetry. Um, not all poetry was written in 12 syllable Alexandrians, but it was kind of the standard form. It was the equivalent of the Greek hexameter within which uh, Greeks epic, Greek epics were written in. So, if this is undermined, what poetry is, is no longer defined by a sort of consensus over prosody. The poetic code no longer defines poetry. The national and collective literary idiom is being replaced by a multiplicity of private and individual ones. So the new poets are coming along and saying, poetry is this, poetry is what I'm doing, and they're all doing something different. So this consensus has been lost. So, hence the crisis in verse. It's le verre, the 12 syllable line that has lost its status as the national cadence. Now, um, I think what goes along with this is something that Malmé talks about in the second half of the essay, where he distinguishes between two different kinds of language. It's the language that is used in the world, normally, between people, and the language of poetry. So poetry is splitting off from the, what Mahomet here calls um, the brute and immediate language that is spoken by everybody in the street, and the essential language that is poetry. The brute or immediate language is a language of what he calls universal reporting, which is a form of entirely commercial exchange and this becomes something else in the poet's hands who creates an art that is sort of above material reality. It's all fiction and virtuality. So the essence of poetry, according to Mahomet, no longer lies in verse, the national cadence, but in a kind of language, the essential language of poetry, which by definition is in opposition to what in a poem uh, he calls the language of a, the tribe. He has this line, donner un sens plus pur au mot de la tribu, give a purer meaning to the words of the tribe, which T.S. Eliot picks up in Little Gidding and has, where he has a line to purify the dialect of the tribe. But for Mallarmé, I don't think there's any sense that poetry is going to intervene in the national language. It's not going to clean it up for more effective and less commercial use. He's saying instead that the national cadence of poetry can no longer serve as the national language of the tribe. And it's this separation between poetry and ordinary language, along with the privatization and the individualization and the fragmentation of the activity of writing that constitutes the crisis that Mahomet is talking about. 
And here, I just want to go back again to the distinction that Mallarmé made between the revolution in the public square and the rending of the veil, because I think it points to a fundamental change in the sense of the way in which literary forms and literary genre are perceived to evolve in relation to the life of the nation. So a quick <clears throat> um, move back into the not so distant past. Uh, for Victor Hugo, if you like the major figure of the 19th century and whose death in 1885 lies behind Mallarmé's reflections on what's happening to poetry because he said that Victor Hugo had been poetry in person and when he died, you know, it all felt, began to fall apart. For Hugo, the development of literary history as he describes it in 1827, um, <clears throat> there's something profoundly organic in the evolution of literary forms. The development from the ode to the epic and to the drama, these are this is him talking about the phases of the development of literature through different genres, corresponds to three phases in the history of mankind. So literature is in phase with civilization, if you like. Each phase has its own natural life cycle, which matches a phase in human civilization. But Hugo also uses the notion of revolution to describe a change brought by the new poetry, his new poetry, in the 19, 1820s, and it's not at all at odds with the organic metaphors through which he describes human and literary development. Uh, he wrote several prefaces to his first major collection of poetry, the Odes et Ballades, Odes and Ballads. And this is the uh, 1828 version. <clears throat> and he makes it clear in the preface that the new poetry is not the result of a crisis as Mahomet would be saying later in the century, but the expression of the revolution. It's a manifestation of the link that Hugo asserts between, I quote, the great political epochs and the beautiful literary epochs. He sounds a bit like Trump there, talking about beautiful. Everything is beautiful for Trump. Anyway, um, so there's a link between politics and literature. Great politics, beautiful literature, kind of a line. And in that regard, he insists on the need for poetry to conform to the genius of our language, at all, the national language and its prosody. And he condemns any innovation that goes against the fundamentals of a shared national language. So this is another way in which poetry is in step with the life of the nation. Or rather, in Hugo's case, one step ahead, because the poet leads the people down the national path and the poet is better placed than anyone else to identify what that path is and where it's going. So Hugo says he, this is the poet, must walk before peoples like a light and show them the way. So he's in step but ahead and they're following. So rather than remaining content with the status of unacknowledged legislator of the world, Hugo's poet seeks to be its most gloriously acknowledged legislator. He and his poetry, as I'm saying, are entirely in step with his people and his time. And I think the French novel of the 19th century also claims the same kind of national representativity. Balzac, in his preface, his avant-propos to the Comédie humaine, all the novels that he put together in this sort of systematized um, fictional world. Um, in the avant-propos, which he wrote in 1842, he says French society would be the historian, I would merely be its secretary. So the novel is, again, 
mapping itself onto French society, but he too arrogates to himself the role of leading light in the sense that he claims that as the novelist secretary to French society, he'll be able to reveal the underlying principle of its workings. So his role as author is to reveal the reasons, or the reason, it's me quoting, behind all these social manifestations and uncover their hidden meaning. So it's a similar position to Hugo, is that he can understand better than everybody else what's going on, and his interpretation will be the subject of um, the novels that he's writing. Zola and his Rougon Macau cycle, 20 volume history of a family under the Second Empire, continues the same idea. And in an essay, Le Roman Experimental, the experimental novel from 1880, and that's in around 1880, he outlines the role of the naturalist novel through an analogy with Claude Bernard's introduction to the study of experimental medicine. And according to Hugo, the, sorry, Hugo Zola, Zola wanted to be Hugo. <laughs> he settled for being Zola as second best. <laughs> the experimental method will not only reveal the workings of the social body, but provide a cure for it. So he won't just be a legislator, he will, as it were, be the doctor, the therapist for French society. Um, this is because naturalism, I quote, is the very intelligence of the century. So the same idea as the one you had with Balzac, that literature could sort of see into the heart of everything, and in the case of Zola, would provide a cure for all its ills. Now, what's happened with Malmé, and we're less than 20 years on from Zola and his Roman Experimental, what's happening with Malmé is that this connection between literature and the century literature and the nation is being lost. What was happening in literature was a crisis and not a revolution in the public square of the kind that had previously taken place both in society and in literature. And one of the points that Mahomé makes, and I think it's important, is that the three revolutions, and as you may or may not know, the French Revolution was repeatedly enacted. Um, it was 1789, 1830, and 1848. In all these multiple changes of regime, poetry itself hadn't changed. So the regime could change, but poetry remained more or less the same in the sense that the Alexandrian remained its core. <clears throat> and um, Maomé has a few words to say about this in a lecture to what must have been some extremely mystified audiences, first in Oxford and then in Cambridge in 1894. Mallarmé came along, suffering from migraine and, I have to say, severe constipation, and delivered uh, this extremely important lecture, which was written in the kind of prose that I mentioned um, earlier on. Anyway, he begins, um, imagine him in the main hall in the Tailoy, and those of you who know it, Imagine Mahomet standing there and saying in French, but I'm going to read it in Barbara Johnson's translation. I do indeed begin, begin, sorry, I do indeed bring news, the most surprising kind. Such a thing is not seen before. Verse has been tampered with. So again, this idea that something major has happened to poetry. Governments change, he says, but prosody always remains intact, either because during revolutions it goes unnoticed, or because whatever violence the government sustains, it is never accompanied by the thought that the latter dogma could vary. So as with Valérie's crise de l'esprit, something durable and apparently permanent, 
has been dismantled, and the principles on which poetry rests have been unsettled. That was the definition of cultural crisis in the Trésor de la Langue Française. And as with Valérie, it's not just the situation that's in crisis, it's the very way in which you might actually understand the situation that is now under threat or undermined. So moving on now finally to the 20th century. In the 1920s, the most commonly talked about crisis is the la crise du roman, the crisis of the novel, cited as an example of the use of the word crise in a cultural context. And this phenomenon has had lengthy and extremely interesting treatment in uh, a book by someone called Michel Raymond about the crisis in the novel from um, late naturalism to the 1920s. So he's talking about a crisis which he identifies as having happened between the 1890s and the late 20s. And there was a lot of talk about the crisis of the novel, so you find articles <coughs> mainly articles, um, with titles like La crise du roman, genre littéraire en danger, la fin du roman, uh, crisis in the novel, a literary genre in danger, the end of the novel. So the viability of the novel itself is placed in question, and this was infectious. You find critics such as the Spanish Ortega y Gasset writing about the decline of the novel in a book called The Dehumanization of Art from, I think, 1925, or Walter Benjamin entitling an essay on Dublin's uh, Alexanderplatz, Crisis des Romans. The Surrealists, who were big in the 1920s, dismissed the novel as an inferior genre. Um, André Breton says it's, uh, the novel just consists of trivial and irrelevant information. And he quotes Valérie again, who had recently said he could never write a novel himself because he could never bring himself to write a sentence such as La Marquise sortie à cinq heures. <laughs> the Marquise uh, could, uh, went out at five o'clock. Now, the example's a bit dis disingenuous because the problem wasn't that you could, could no longer write about the aristocracy in the way that you could and did in the early 19th century, but you couldn't write a narrative the way that people did at the time when the lives of Marquis were the stuff of no novels. So changing the personal, personnel of fiction wasn't any kind of solution. You couldn't just replace the Marquis embarking on an evening social round with a miner getting up at dawn for a day's labor, which is what Zola had done in Germinal, for example. What was happening was that the adequacy of the forms of fiction were being questioned. So narrative sequence was being questioned. The reliability of authorial omniscience was being questioned. And the value or even the possibility of objective representation was equally um, challenged. So objective impersonal narration was replaced by internal subjective point of view. The representation of the external world was replaced by a focus on the experience of characters in the world. So the way the, way the world looked to an individual was more important than the way that it appeared in some objective representation. And in a sense, narrative itself was undermined. Narrative was replaced by information. And the sorts of novels, or at least I'm following Michel Raymond in this book I mentioned, in suggesting that um, these three novels, I'm cheating because he actually picks another text by Gide that it also dates from 1913, are kind of typical of what's happening. Uh, Alain Fournier, Le Grand Monde, describes kind of a situation. It's poetic. Proust um, and Gide and 
I've missed, sorry, there's a typo in Les Fourmonnières. Um, <clears throat> we're writing fiction according to different strategies, and in the case of Gide, it's particularly obvious um, the fiction, the novel became not only experimental, but also highly self-conscious. Novels were writing about, uh, writing their own awareness of their status as novels into novels. Now you could say, oh, this is just modernism, which was the major literary and cultural move movement in Europe in the first decades of the 20th century. But my point is that in France, if not elsewhere, and that elsewhere certainly includes England, it was lived as a crisis. And I can't resist giving you a slightly anachronistic anecdote. Um, in one of John Bailey's books about Iris Murdoch, he talks about talks that they would be invited to give. We're now in the 1960s about the future of the novel, which was the sort of topic that people were invited to talk about. And he and Iris Murdoch called it withering, as in wither the novel. <laughs> so they were off withering. And this kind of flippant attitude towards the way a whole, an entire literary genre might be developing seems to me very characteristic of the British approach, whereas the French would be talking about a crisis. So if, if this idea of a crisis in a genre seems um, overblown, it's because you're like John Bailey and Iris Murdoch and you just say, well, we're off to Manchester withering tomorrow or wherever. So I think this is because of the long-held assumptions in France about the organic relation between lit the literary and the social, the historical and political developments. And what you find in the crisis of the novel of the 1920s is very broadly the same configuration as the one identified by Mallarmé in uh, Crise de Verre, namely a loss of consensus about the rules of art. Or if you like, narrative authority was the novel's equivalent of the national cadence of the Alexandrian in poetry. And you get, again, this shift towards an emphasis on the individual or subjective perspective as being the thing that might but actually doesn't validate literature. And it, as with Maomé, um, is combined with an increased value placed on art and aestheticism. So the more of a value that you put on the novel, and Gide would talk about the pure novel in the 1920s, this was his aspiration to create a pure novel. Um, Again, you're getting a split between the language of the tribe, if you like, and the language of literature. And the emphasis on dealing with this, the problems are on formal solutions, the multiple perspectives, uh, poetic diction, interior monologue, reflexivity, and so on. Anyway, the crisis of the novel that I've been talking about um, ceased to be felt as anything particularly acute beyond the end of the 1920s. So we've got a crisis of the novel from, let's go with Michel Raymond, say the 1890s to the late 20s. Over the course of the 1930s, it was more or less business as usual in the novel, or rather, you can immediately think, I hope, of, or you might be able to think of examples of uh, novels such as Céline, um, where you'd say, well, no, it's not gone back to business as usual, but it wasn't perceived as critical, as it were. It was just stuff that happened, and you didn't get anxious about it. However, and this isn't particularly um, widely acknowledged, I think the idea of a novel of the 1940s, it's a slight obsession of mine, um, is something that is not widely talked about, um, to the extent that Michel Raymond mentions 
comments from the 1940s in his book he talks about is a hangover from the 1920s, but I, I think it's a bit different. Now, the importance of the novel as a genre in this decade, the 1940s, and this is a bit of a parenthesis, but since it's something I'm obsessed by, I can't resist mentioning it. Um, I think it's, it runs for the entire decade, so we can't talk about the, the war and the occupation and everything's all right after 1945. A preoccupation with the novel uh, runs throughout the 1940s and then fades again, or takes a different form. <clears throat> Now, I think the importance of the novel as a genre is reflected in the fact that a large number of the writers of a new generation were drawn to the novel at the time without being or without remaining full-time novelists. Now, this makes them different from the novelists of the 1920s who were, if you like, full-time novelists, full-time writers of fiction. So, my examples would be uh, these people, Sartre, Camus, Simon de Beauvoir, Maurice Blanchot, Louis-René Desforêts, Jean Genet, Jean Quayrol, and Beckett, who became a French novelist in the 1940s. Um, you'll notice, with one exception, they were all born in the decade before World War I and came to adulthood in the late 20s and 30s. If you're not a French specialist, you may not have heard of absolutely all of them, but I mention these names because they're important for the history of the novel. Um, but for the purposes of today, um, the interesting thing is that their contribution to the genre is confined almost exclusively to the 1940s. And it's as if there was a crisis that drew the writers at the time to the genre of the novel, which put the genre in crisis, but it was a means also of responding to a crisis. And the decade, like the 1920s, is also striking for the number and the energy of critical and theoretical discussions of the novel as a genre. And these included discussions by several of the novelists themselves, and in particular, Sartre and Maurice Blanchot, who were both major critics in the sense of reviewers and essayists, of the f <coughs> um, in which they de developed and refined conceptions of the genre not at all the same sorts of conception, but they were writing about the novel as if it was an a phenomenon that required urgent attention. This thinking had begun before 1939, but the fall of France in 1940 obviously clinched the sense of urgency with which the novel became imbued at the time. And the significance of the defeat in 1940 was underscored retrospectively by Sartre in his essay, Situation of the Writer, in 1947, where he wrote, the destiny of our works themselves were bound to that of France in danger. So France is in danger. It's not the novel that's in danger, as it happened in the 1920s. France in itself, for obvious reasons, was in danger. Our elders, these are the people who, in writing novels in the 30s, wrote for idle souls, pour des âmes vacantes, but for the public, which we, in our turn, were going to address, the vacation was over. So the novel acquires a new urgency. Sartre clearly considered that the defeat of France was due in part to the failures, failures of the preceding generation of French novelists, which is quite a claim to make, but he's more or less saying, look, if these guys had been paying attention properly, the Germans wouldn't, or we wouldn't be under Nazi occupation. I'm exaggerating. And he wasn't the only person to blame the intellectuals for what had happened. Um, in his essay, 
the novel is important, literature is important, in another essay that he wrote, 1945, the nationalization of literature, he gives the novel a key role in redefining French nationhood in the liberation. So novelist of the 1940s responsible for the occupation and the fall of France, La Défaite, the novelists of the 1940s are going to help France get back on its feet uh, after the liberation. And for him, this association between literature and national destiny entailed what Barthes would soon afterwards call the responsibility of form. So the concern with formal issues that had dominated discussion in the 1920s comes back, but kind of um, attached to the uh, a larger national program. The rebirth of France would emerge via a transformation of narrative technique, whereby the novelists abandoned uh, the remote authorial viewpoint from which their elders had written these and their Kant, and which, according to Sartre, was the basis on which they produced the delusively stable world of the pre-war novel. What was at stake wasn't primarily the novel as a genre, but a particular way of writing fiction. But the sense of urgency associated with the novel emerges much sooner than 1945, and it's already apparent during uh, the occupation itself. And for the last part of the, this talk, I'm just going to talk, uh, um, say a little bit about uh, a literary journal uh, called Confluence, which in 1943 produced a double number. Uh, there's a picture of it. Here's a real example. Of, on the novel entitled Problème d'une roman, and that title um, I think is important, Problems of the Novel, assembling some 50 contributions by critics and novelists, one section of which is called Crise du roman, Crisis in the Novel, novel and another, a little bit more optimistically, L'avenir du roman, The Future of the Novel. It was republished in book form in 1945, once again under the title Problème du roman, so we're still thinking about the novel in terms of problems. Confluence was one of several journals that were created during the occupation dealing with literary and cultural matters, often covertly complicit with the resistance and for good reason. Um, the list auto was the list of censored works which came out in three versions in September 1940, 1942 and May 1943, banning various authors including Jewish authors, foreign authors, authors hostile to Nazism. There were also restrictions placed on publishers about what they could publish. There's a limitation in paper supply, which dictated what could be published. And in addition, um, booksellers were prohibited from selling books by authors from countries with which occupied France was at war. So it was, you couldn't get hold of English, or not supposed to get, be able to get hold of books by English and American and so on, authors. So literature itself was both the object of censorship and a means of resistance. Confluence was founded in 1941. It was based in Lyon, in the Zone Libre, which was a major center for the resistance. Its editor was René Tavernier, who was more usually associated with poetry than with the novel. But the fact that this issue was given over to the novel seems to me in and of itself an indication of the topical status that the genre was perceived as having at the time. Now, three things emerge very clearly from the publication. The first is a sense that circumstances have changed radical, radically, the circumstances under which novels were being produced. The second, and the very terms and the nature, uh, the very terms and nature of the novel have been altered dramatically. 
And the third is that this is reflected in a very active and wide-ranging thinking about the novel. Um, Tavernier has a nice expression, une pensée romanesque, a thinking about the novel. And this is something that the uh, double number is collectively engaged in, in a thinking about the novel, as if a thinking about the novel is what needs to happen for the survival of the novel. But it's a thinking that's expressed in terms of crisis. And as I said, there is a section of the, no the number called crisis in the novel. And the point is repeated by a number of the contributors. So one writes, the novel is in full-blown crisis today. And Blanchot writing in an essay published at the same time, but not in this number, uh, writes for a very long time, the novel of the work of literature has been undergoing a crisis whose meaning remains unclear. So this sense, once again, that there's a crisis that we can't understand or we haven't got a handle on. The idea that something has changed is a claim made on a number of occasions in the special number and is confirmed by Tavernier when he says, since the armistice, it appears that a different kind of novel from the one in the inter interwar period is in the process of emerging in France. And here are some examples. We start with Sartre's La Nose, which predates the war, but in the 1940s was seen as having heralded the kind of thing that was happening in the 1940s. So these are one or two names were not on my list of new writers. And Luc Dietrich, unfortunately, died in 1944. Um, but these are all people who are perceived in the early 40s as doing something new with the novel. They're telling, telling us something about what was going on in the novel. And another critic talks about a complete renewal of the art of fiction. And he says there's a categorical break between the generation of novelists belonging to the two decades leading up to 1939 and the one that emerged after 1940. The point is put most clearly by Jean Bousquet, who, like Tavernier, was actually more of a poet himself, when he stresses the radical nature of the literary change that's taken place. He writes, a hurricane has blown through literature. We saw and heard nothing. But judging by our inability to find any interest in the works that only yesterday were still admired, we realized that something serious had happened. Everything has changed so much that it's impossible to derive a valid doctrine for the novel of the future from the critical experiences of before the war. Several writers make this point and claim that no the novel is in a kind of crisis of its own and is in urgent need of renewal is repeated over and over again. Um, the implication is that the survival of the novel depends on experimentation and on an active thinking about the novel in ways that possibly don't have their equivalent in other genres. I think the novel is a genre that is perceived as needing to evolve in ways that perhaps don't apply quite so urgently to other forms. And one of the claims that's made is that French novelists have sort of lagged behind. The English and the Americans are way ahead, and the French stopped thinking about fiction and stopped experimenting, and it's a kind of national disgrace has been a consequence. Tavernier calls the French novel decadent uh, on the grounds that it's got locked in what he calls a pure-eyed taste for realism and an exclusive concern with fidelity to external observi observation. 
Um, the novel is viewed here not just as a symptom of a larger crisis, but as the means of identifying a crisis which extends beyond the immediate circumstances of the war. So there were kind of three levels of crisis. There's a sort of global crisis of civilization which predates the war. There's the war itself, which Tavernier suggests is kind of a symptom of this broader crisis. And then there's the crisis in the novel. <clears throat> um, and he says, this other more serious crisis, the one in civilization, affects all of us in the deepest parts of ourselves. We, whoops, didn't take that one. Uh, we know that it marks a big change in the history of mankind and that it's partly up to us to correct its meaning. The novel is as much or even more than any other form of expression able to describe this drama, to anticipate its outcome, and in a sense to precipitate it. So if we want to know what's going on, if we want to get a handle on this crisis, we turn to the novel to do it. And the role of the novel in this context is mentioned by several other critics and contributors to this special number. And if the novel is the means of getting a handle on the crisis, it's not because it stands outside it, it's because it's implicated in it. It participates in the crisis. Now, this has two consequences. One is that no one novel, or even no one novelist, is in a position to identify or reveal the crisis. You know that you might begin to get a handle on it by sort of getting into novels, by writing them, by reading them, by thinking about them but you're not going to be able to get outside and um, master it. The only, the only thing you can do is, secondly, um, put, get a, begin to get a handle on it by putting several novels and novelists alongside each other. And that's one of the things that this number of confluence is doing. You put all discussions of these different novelists together, and by putting them together, you might get a sense of, might get closer to what's happening. And Sartre says very, something very similar in this essay, Nationalization of Literature, in uh, 1945. It was the first essay in the first number of Les Tombes Down, where he's urging people, as it were, to keep involved with the present moment, keep involved with a crisis, as it were, in the hopes that something clear will emerge from it. So he says, we live in history like fish in water. We have an acute awareness of our historical responsibility. We should be content, he says, to create our own history blindly, day by day. We can never take the kind of overview that made the fortunes of Ten or Michelet. We are inside it. Nous sommes dedans. So there's a sense that you're not going to be able to get a picture of the crisis, but you, you kind of get in step with the crisis from the inside, get in step in a rather different way from the way in which Hugo saw himself as being in step with the nation over 100 years previously. In fact, Sartre is a little bit skeptical about the notion of a crisis of the novel. Um, I thought it's fair to mention that. He says it's impossible to identify the image that the work will have for the readers of tomorrow. We cannot be inside and outside at that same time, so who's to know whether we're, we're really in any kind of a crisis? What the novelist has to do, according to South, is engage himself in the present, to commit himself to the present. And elsewhere, South will insist on the importance of literary techniques that keep the novelist inside history um, 
engaged with the present because these will best allow the future to read off the reality of a present that the novelist himself, and mostly Sartre is rather a macho person, so doesn't really recognize the existence of women writing. Um, <clears throat> although one of the interesting things about Confluence is the recognition of women novelists without making a deal of it. You know, they're just treated on the same plain as everybody else, which is, that's a complete aside. So for Sartre, you keep in step with the present, and that's the way in which you can testify best to what's happening. So you're not standing back from it like Balzac and saying you're going to reveal the reasons or the reason behind the multiplicity of social phenomena. It's you're going to participate in it, in the social phenomena, in order that they can be legible for the future. So your authenticity or the salvation will rely on the degree to which you as a novelist write in a way that will make the present legible for the future. So you're creating narratives based in the present, you're refusing all retrospective and authorial overview, you're adopting the perspectives, perspectives of the characters. Um, so this is the exact reverse, as I say, of Balzac, but I think it's nice that we're almost a little bit over a century apart. Balzac was making these claims in 1842, Sartre is in 1845 saying something very different, but still keeping the idea that the novel has a key role to play in relation to national history. <clears throat> um, and I think he's assuming a little bit what, like what Mallarmé says about the number of poets, that it's going to be a collective revelation. Everybody's going to do their own thing. The future will put all the different people together doing their own thing as honestly and as faithfully to the present as each of them is able. So the multiplication of writers, the multiplication of ways in which novels might be written isn't a bad thing any longer. So what we've got, I think, is an image of several writers doing their own thing, which will reveal an image of a national picture as it emerges from a crisis, may still be in crisis, depends how you see it. South was an eternal optimist, as he always said, rather than lots of people subscribing to a single literary movement. So it's a kind of reverse image of um, collective and individual. Um, okay, so, pour conclure, it seems to me that three points emerge from all of this. First of all, that at least in the French literary context, the terms revolution and crisis, which you see in dictionaries often coupled together, people say revolution and crisis, I think they become uncoupled in the 20th century, at least in the literary context, or at least in the French literary context. Um, if you like, revolution remains attached to a 19th century way of thinking about literature. Crisis is the mode of 20th century literature and thinking more generally. And I think what distinguishes crisis from revolution is the implication of the medium itself in the phenomenon. It becomes hard to locate crisis outside the means of doing so, which makes it hard to locate crisis. It's sort of turns back in on itself. Whether it's thought in the case of Valérie, or poetry in the case of Mallarmé, or the novel itself in the case of the crises of the 20s and 40s. And finally, there's the point about the effects of this fragmentation, this 
loss of consensus, as it were, about what's going on, about the novel, about poetry. This fragmentation and the multiplication of writers and poet, poets and thinkers, if you like, engaged in the crisis, which Sartre finds an optimistic solution to. So the rending of the veil, as it were, everyone can enter the Holy of Holies, and it's a kind of free-for-all. And that's it. <laughs>